Jude, verses 14 to 16. Hear with me God's word. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way in all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. As far as reading of God's Word. Today, as we look at our text, verses 14 to 16, Jude here will describe a prophecy in which the prophet Enoch predicts a time in which the Lord will come with His saints and with His angels to execute judgment upon the wicked. And we are told that this judgment will come because of the ungodliness of the man's deeds as well as the ungodliness of man's speech. Now I'm sure that to this world this comes as a surprise as they kind of see God detached from the world. He's too busy to care about what it is that we do and say here on earth. And as man, we like to project unto God what is true of us. And so, for example, we say, uh, well, God is love. And so, what is it that man thinks love is? Love is uh, letting everyone live in whatever manner they choose and never pointing out if something is wrong or sinful. And so then we project it unto God. He must be like us, and so He doesn't care as long as you're happy. Right? We like to say what, what's done in private, if it, if it doesn't affect you, it shouldn't bother you. And because it doesn't bother us, it likewise doesn't bother God. And so, if I'm an alcoholic, and I stay in my room all day, and I drink, and I drink, and I drink, as long as I don't go out and injure anyone else, it doesn't affect you. Why do you care? Or, maybe I'm sexually promiscuous, and I uh, have interactions with people different people, not who is my wife. And I say, well, it's my body. If I choose to live this way, it doesn't affect you. Why do you care? Or perhaps I decide to have an abortion. Right? It doesn't affect you, my abortion. This is me and my body. It's between me and my doctor. It shouldn't bother you. It's my business. But what's mistaken is that all of our business is God's business. You see, the world has fashioned a God who lacks knowledge and is remiss or he's careless about the acts of the people here on earth as long as we're not infringing upon others. But see, this world is sorely mistaken as Scripture is clear in the omniscience of God as well as His fervor for and standard of both purity and holiness in His creation. We can look at just one quick example of his omniscience in Scripture. Uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 24. We remember as the apostles are in the upper room and they're looking for someone to replace Judas Iscariot. And they're praying to the Lord of who it should be that should replace him. And in verse 24, what does it say? You, Lord, you who know the hearts of all, show us which one of these two you have chosen. Oh, boy. Would the world be surprised to know that not only God knows it, uh, your deeds, 
Not only does He know your, your speech and what you say, but He knows your thoughts. He knows your feelings, even if you do not act upon them. Also, He is unwavering in His standard of righteousness. He cares what His people do. What his people do. He has fervor for that standard. And one example of this, from Acts chapter 5, remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira. The husband and wife duo who sell a piece of their property. But they together keep back a portion of the land. And they give the other proceeds to the apostles. They lay them before they, their feet. But they do so as if they're giving them all of the money that they had from the sale. Which was not true. And what does Peter say in chapter 5 verse 3? Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. And we know that their fate, they were struck down because of their lies. Ananias and Sapphira thought, hey, what we do in the darkness, that's our business. If we don't tell anyone, no one's going to find out. Just like the world thinks. Whatever we do, if we don't get caught, if it's behind closed doors, it's okay. We can think about just over the past 15 to 20 years, so many examples coming from the world of sports. Everyone, you might not like cycling, like Scott does, but we've probably all heard of Lance Armstrong. And he was this miracle story. He had this cancer and he was laying on his deathbed to overcome this and to win the Tour de France seven times, breaking all sorts of records, only to find out later it was a farce, it was a hoax. Because the whole time he was a cheat. He was taking steroids in order to gain a competitive advantage over his opponents. Or think about the sport of baseball. You don't have to know much about baseball to know that baseball has been dealing with a great big scandal on steroids. I mean, we can, we can think about some of the all-time greats over the last 20 years who we know have taken steroids. And all these athletes think that What's done behind closed doors is their business. If the public doesn't find out, it's okay. Just don't get caught. As if not getting caught makes it okay. They think, well, hey, we're out here in the community. We're doing a good service to the community. We're providing entertainment. Uh, we're, we're pretty moral people. Everything should be okay. And this is kind of how the world thinks in our sin against God. As long as in the public's eye we do good deeds, we do good works, we treat people kindly, we'll be in the good graces of God because all He sees is the same thing that everyone else sees. But Jude writes to say, in fact, this is not true. Each and every person, He sees every word you say, every deed you perform, every thought you think. And for these things He is coming to put an end to the wicked. Judgment is coming. I think sometimes Christ's return gets mistaken. The world thinks He's coming to take everyone to heaven. They hear about His return and think redemption. But they mistake Christ's first return for His second. Jesus says in John chapter 12, verse 47, If anyone hears My words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to, the, to judge the world, but to save the world. Or in chapter 3 and verse 17 of John's Gospel. For God did not send the Son to the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. 
You see people heal us and say, oh, when Christ returns, it's going to be pleasant for me. Right? He's not coming to judge the world. He's coming to save it. Well, yes, the, the Bible does say that. Remember from our reading of the Gospel, what does the angel of the Lord say to Joseph? Name uh, your son Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Yet he did that when he came. The first time. He accomplished that in his life, death, and resurrection. This was his first coming. But his second coming is described much differently. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, starting at verse 5, listen to what Christ's second return will be like. Paul says, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and grant relief to you who are afflicted as well. When the Lord is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of our Lord and from the glory of His might. See, Christ's coming will be nothing like His first. His first coming, He came as a lowly man, a carpenter's boy, someone who was laughed at and was mocked and who died on the cross. And as He died, it seemed like His opponents got the best of Him. Yet His return will be much different, for He will come in glory with His saints and with His angels. And all will bow the knee to Him. And it will be seen from every creature that it in fact was Christ who was victorious as He died upon that cross. As He triumphed over Satan and all evil forces. Yet people today should not be unaware of this fact that judgment is coming to the wicked. For it was prophesied so long ago. This is what Jude highlights today when he speaks of the prophet Enoch. And here we have then the first of our two points this morning. The first point is judgment pronounced. Judgment pronounced. Our second point will be just judgment executed. So judgment pronounced, judgment executed. And so then to look at judgment pronounced once more, look with me in Jude verse 14 as he says, It was about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied saying, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of His holy ones to execute judgment in all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such ungodly way and all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. Remember, Enoch was a godly man who walked with God, whom we read, we read about in Genesis 5. Remember, he walked with God and was taken to heaven, never dying. Yet before Enoch uh, died, he walked upon this earth and prophesied that there will be a time in which God will come to judge. You see, since the fall of man, judgment has been a sure thing. It's nothing new. And from Genesis on, we see that God's people have pronounced that judgment is coming. To every succeeding uh, generation, they've heard of the judgment to come. We can think of the Apostle Paul What does he say in Romans? Man is without excuse for that which may be known of God is made plain to all. And then in the beginning verses of chapter 2 he says, 
But because of your impenitent hearts, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God will come to judge all in righteousness. Or even years prior to that, what does Jesus say in Matthew 25? He tells of a time when the sheep and the goats will be separated. Remember, He says the sheep will go to the right and the goats will go to the left. And He will say to those on the left, Cursed are you into eternal fire prepared for the Satan and his angels. It is not as if, it, as, if, as if the world has not been warned. Rather, they just choose not to heed the warning. They don't see its importance. They don't t- see how serious the judgment is. For some reason, they still think that they, they can get one over on God. They think they can pull the wool over His eyes that He won't see their sin, both in word and in deed. But what does Jesus say in Luke's Gospel? Nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be made known and come to life. And so let this be a warning to all of us even who confess Christ. God will not be mocked. Don't think that what you do in the privacy of your home will be kept secret. Those actions, those words, we will be judged for. Yet also, if we are truly Christ, then we don't have to fret nor worry about the judgment. The judgment to us will no longer be a terror. Those sinful words and deeds that we so easily did apart from Christ have now been covered in the blood of Christ. The blood of the new covenant. And now we are new creatures in Christ. Our sins are no longer held against us. And as the Father sees us, He now sees the righteousness of Christ. This enables us now then to look forward to His coming judgment with joy. For if we truly hate sin, when Christ returns again, it spells the end of sin. If we truly love God, when He returns, it means that we will be in the presence of the One we love for all eternity. Is this not what we should desire? And so the judgment for you and I is something that is of a joyous occasion. For just as Christ said, those on the left, those goats, be cast away into eternal fire. He likewise had something to say to the sheep on the right. In Matthew 25, He says, Come you who are blessed by My Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Here, when the judgment comes, we will then receive in fullness the promises of God. Redemption will be complete as we will be glorified with the Son. Yet while we wait for the Lord's return, let us be those who take solace and consolation in the fact that we have a guarantee of this heavenly inheritance. As even Jesus says, you're going to inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. What does Jude tell tell us already in verse 4? In his opening salutation, I'm sorry, in verse uh, 1. To those who are called, beloved, kept for Christ. Jude has already told us we are those who are kept for Christ when He returns. No one is able to snatch us out of the Father's hand. No one is able to separate us from the love of God. So even though daily we deal with the struggle of sin, Temptation surrounds us. Infirmity takes hold of us. Anguish overcomes us. 
We know that it is but for a short time. For when Christ comes, He has told us that He is going to bring relief to the afflicted. How comforting should that be to you and I? And having that brew and stir in our mind, thinking about that, this should aid us, should help us in pushing forward and pressing on in the Christian life daily so that we finish that race strong. Because although things may be tough now, we must know that these trials and tribulations that we are going through are preparing us for that heavenly glory that awaits us. Yet for the ungodly, those who delight in seeing Christians suffer, who take joy and pleasure when we stumble, they too will receive their just recompense. They will stand before God and have to answer for every idle word and deed done before Him. As Jude says in verse 16, that these people are grumblers. They're malcontents. They follow their own sinful desires. They're loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain, to gain advantage. And so this then leads us to our second point of the morning, which is judgment executed. See, Enoch announced that judgment was certainly coming to the ungodly. This was our first point, judgment pronounced. But our second deals with why it's coming. It's coming, Jude says, on the basis that ungodly men and women have sinned against God both in their deeds as well as in their speech. Judgment will be executed because of sin. And sinning with our tongue comes so natural to you and I. And it springs forth from so many different forms. We've seen that in our reading of the gospel, in our reading of the law this morning. Right? And we know what it is of someone who's a loudmouth boaster, right? We don't need much explanation on what that is. We've all heard or dealt with those type of people. They're not those that you have to seek out and find. They usually seek you out and find you. And they tell you, they can tell you tales of their glory and their beauty and their intelligence. They can go on and on about their accomplishments, about their wealth, about their possessions. Perhaps one good example of this, if you all recall, is Jesus' parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. You remember they go up to the temple to pray. And it's said that the, the Pharisee prays, Oh, thank you, Jesus, that I am not like sinners. Thank you, God, I am not like sinners. And then he goes on to exalt himself saying, that I tithe and I fast twice a week. I'm not like these others. Essentially, he's saying, I'm better than others. What pride is that? There's nothing but pride. And Is this what Christians, we are called to be like? No. We are called to esteem our brothers and sisters higher than ourselves. In Philippians 2, Paul says, do nothing out of conceit. Likewise, these false teachers Jude talks about sin with their mouth as they were Grumblers or malcontents. They complained about their life. Nothing was ever good enough. They hated the place that they were in in life. As Jude accuses them already of rejecting authority. Remember from last time, he said that they perished in Korah's rebellion as Korah and his followers contested against Moses and Aaron in Numbers 26. They saw greater stature. And so likewise, these false teachers that Jude writes of were unhappy being in the, uh, under the authority 
of those who were appointed elders and leaders in that church. And as parents, we see examples of this daily, of grumblers and malcontents. It's easy to see that with our children. You know, Mom, Dad, why did he get one more scoop of ice cream than me? Or why does he get to play with this toy and not I? Everything is a complaint. Even for us as adults at work, we have uh, fellow employees. Maybe one gets a promotion over someone else and what do they do? The other people, they pout and they mope and they have a bad attitude. And they pity themselves, grumbling about their perceived slight. Yet this is not how the Christian is called to act. The Christian is called to be content in all things. Right? Paul was content with much or with little. Paul was content whether in jail or free. Paul didn't say, Oh God, well, look at all these other disciples. Why do they get to go out and about? Why I'm stuck in jail? Why do they receive the glory? Why I'm stuck in jail? No, that's not what Paul said. Even when he, even when he heard of that there were others out there preaching out of rivalry with Paul, right? Out of envy. What did Paul say? He was fine with it. He was okay with it. He said because he was happy that God was being glorified in it. He said that's great. Let them preach. I don't care what their motive is as long as Christ is being preached. And he just desired to be content in jail preaching to the small audience in which he had. Likewise, we are called to be content, not to be grumblers or malcontents, unhappy with where we are in life, complaining always. Yet Jude also says that these false teachers not only sinned in their ungodly speech, but likewise they sinned in their ungodly acts, following after their own sinful desires, he says. Now this doesn't bear much repeating as week after week we have seen how they have followed after their sinful desires. As verse 7, remember they were compared to those of Sodom and Gomorrah following after sexual immorality. Or in verse 4, how Jude writes that they were perverting the grace of God, turning it into sensuality. As sinners lack self-control. They're inflamed by passions and so whatever passion arises that day, they follow after. But as the Christian, we have been given the Holy Spirit. And one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. And so that which we so easily fed into in our former life, we now fight against. Although sometimes our members still want to engage, the Spirit fights against it. This is what the Apostle Paul is speaking about in Romans chapter 7, in keeping the moral law. Remember, he says, this is the battle between desiring to keep the law, yet he says, I still violate the law, all the while while desiring to still obey the law. You see, but this struggle does not exist in the ungodly. They sin with ease, with readiness, no qualms about it. Yet the Christian, although we still sin, it is something that we fight against. The flesh wars with the spirit. It bothers us when we sin. But we have the Spirit of Christ who aids us in carrying out the will of God. And so this is why we are called to continually walk in the Spirit. That we would not gratify those sinful desires any longer, that we would no longer fall into sin. But rather we would flee sin and temptation, that we would turn to Christ and to His strength to allow us to subdue all those thoughtful desires, all those sinful thoughts. 
as we are to be bringing our will into subjection to God's. The last sin which Jude speaks about is the sinful deed of showing favoritism. What does Scripture say about showing favoritism? Well, if you remember from our brother Michael when he preached through James, if you want, turn with me to James chapter 2 and we will see what James has to say about showing favoritism. James chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. James chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. James says this, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, stand over there, sit at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? You see, showing favoritism is sin. It elevates within the body of Christ one member to the exclusion of another. This is not to occur. There isn't any first class and second class Christian within the body of Christ. What does Paul say? There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, but all are one in Christ. Favoritism separates that which God has saw fit to bring together. It ignores one of the reasons for His very coming. There is a divide between Jew and Gentile. The Gentile was not allowed into the temple to worship with the Jew. The sacrifice of the high priest was to the Jew, the nation of Israel, not to the Gentile. The Jews had the oracles of God, not the Gentiles. Yet to behave today as if there is still this distinction between Jew and Gentile, between physical circumcision and uncircumcision. Today, maybe it's uh, the older folks with the younger folks, or maybe the division between those who have wealth and those who are poor. To allow this to continue in the church is in effect a denial of the cross of Christ. For His death broke down this wall of hostility, abolishing the ceremonies that separated peoples. And He did it to create, instead of two men, one man. There is one body. And so these false teachers in showing favoritism were denying Christ. This is what Jude says they were doing in verse 4. Their actions in effect were denial of the cross. And they showed favoritism out of gain, out of ambition, in order to amass a following to usurp God's rightful ministers. But we know that upon hearing what Jude has to say, that they will be judged for their godless deeds and for their godless words. And so we as a body of Christ must learn that we are to be those who are watchful over ourselves. We are to be watchful and protective over our very souls as we see that the ungodly are not. And we see the justice that will be rendered to them because of their sin. And so, one way that we keep watchful over ourselves is through prayer. We keep watchful over ourselves through prayer. As we see that in Scripture, oftentimes watchfulness and prayer are connected. Two examples of this, briefly, come from Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18. Paul says, Praying at all times in the Spirit 
with prayer and supplication to that end keep alert or be watchful with all perseverance making supplication for the saints be watchful and pray or what does Jesus tell the saints in Matthew 26 in the garden of Gethsemane before he goes out to pray he tells them watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation in order to be watchful it requires us to seek out the Lord for we cannot keep watch over ourselves by our own strength Rather, this requires the work of the Holy Spirit. This world says, if I want something bad enough, I put my mind to it, I can achieve it. But Scripture says that nothing that we can do is good in the sight of God. We cannot stir ourselves up to do anything good and godly. Likewise, you and I, apart from the Spirit, outside of faith, could do no good thing. But now that we have been given the Spirit, we are to seek after Christ and all His spiritual benefits, found in Him that we would flee immorality and cleave to Him. As we by nature are complainers, we by nature show favoritism, we join cliques and exclude others, we by nature are boasters about things we have, we follow after sinful desires. But we have, unlike this world, the Spirit of Christ, so let us be those who part with those evil practices that we once so joyfully partook in. And we do this by being watchful over what we do and what we say, guarding ourselves from sin, reminding ourselves the promises of God, and through much diligent prayer. For the judgment is certainly coming upon all men. We can look at the story of Enoch. What does, when Jude uh, brings up Enoch in verse 14, if we look back to Enoch in chapter 5, for chapter 4 and chapter 5 of Genesis are a great picture of the judgment. What happens in chapter 4? Cain kills his brother Abel, and what is the Lord's response? He curses Cain, right? And what was Cain's response to the Lord? In chapter 4, verse 13, he says, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. Isn't this a picture of what eternal punishment is going to be like? A great punishment in which sinners will be cast away from the presence of our Lord. Even remember earlier we quoted 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. When Paul described the punishment of the wicked, what did he say? They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. This is what we read is the punishment that Cain suffered. Yet his earthly punishment is only temporal. It's a taste of what's really to come. And so as we open our Bibles and we read Genesis 4 and we, we see that this is likewise our fate. We see that we walked in the way of Cain. Eternal destruction is our fate, just like Cain. Yet God in His goodness and His wisdom, one chapter over, gives us the story of Enoch. And in the story of Enoch, He provides us not despair like we have in the picture of Cain, but rather with the Enoch, He gives us a picture of hope. As Enoch walked with God and was taken to heaven to be with the Lord, as Calvin said of this text, he said the translation of Enoch to heaven was to be for the church a picture, a visible representation 
of the blessed resurrection. It is to be a picture for us of the blessed resurrection. You see, all those who walk by faith as Enoch have the resurrection to look forward to. Not eternal destruction visibly pictured in the punishment of Cain, but eternal life pictured in the translation of Enoch to heaven. Yet remember, it is not because of Enoch's resurrection that we will be resurrected. Enoch's resurrection was a a picture of the resurrection of the godly. But it is because of the resurrection of Christ that we too will be resurrected. Remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ wasn't raised from the dead, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then our preaching is in vain. Our faith is in vain. But what does Paul say? Don't worry. For Christ has risen from the dead. It's a historical reality. It truly happened. And so when Christ returns, you too will be raised from the dead. This is why as Christians we are not to slumber and sleep like this world. No, we are to be awake and alert as each day that passes is a day that nears closer and closer to the return of our Lord. And so prepare yourselves for that day daily through reading God's Word, meditating upon God's Word, praying, being with God's people, keeping ourselves busy with heavenly things, looking forward to the appearance of Christ when He will descend one final time as the voice of the archangel will go forth and we will be lifted up to the Lord to meet Him, to usher Him back down to this earth where He will execute judgment upon the world. And so no longer let us be those who participate in ungodly deeds and ungodly speech, but rather, as we are here, walk by faith in a manner worthy of our calling as we anticipate, as we wait for in hope and in great expectation the hearing of that great trumpet sound. Please bow with me and let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we give thanks and praise to You, Lord, for You have given us the picture of Cain, which brings misery to all people. We know that in the way of Cain, we likewise have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God and are deserving of death. But likewise, You are a good God. And You give us also the picture of Enoch, who walked by faith and was translated to heaven with the Lord, giving us a picture of that blessed resurrection, giving your people hope, not despair, as you, Lord, have told us that you are keeping us for the return of your Son. And so, Father, we pray for that return, that it would come soon. Although as we wait upon this earth, Lord, we pray that you would stir our souls to be... Uh, alert and awake and ready for your return, not to sleep like this world. But Lord, as we are here on this earth, we still need those things to keep us. And so Lord, we pray for your spiritual blessings. We pray, Lord, for your comfort and for your strength. Father, we pray for all that we need to be sustained, to deal with the assailing works of the ungodly. Yet, Father, we pray for the ungodly as well, that they, Lord, would hear Your Word preached, 
and they would repent of your of their sin and they would turn to your son Jesus Christ. And so Father, we ask Lord that this word that you have spoken this morning you would apply to our hearts and that we would use throughout this week and that it would stir and invigorate us to a healthy living of the Christian life. And so Father, we pray all these things in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen.